All right, James chapter two. Okay, this is, a, I'll just confess up front, this is a harrowing passage. This is, uh, this is the most controversial passage in the book of James. One could make an argument that this might be among the most controversial passages in the entire New Testament. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, thought that the book of James didn't even belong in the Bible because of this passage. Because this passage, uh, he could not see a reconciliation between the things that James says here and the things that the apostle Paul says in multiple places. So I'll just give you an example. What makes this text so difficult, we'll read it in a second, is that James says a person is, quote, justified by works. It's not a paraphrase, that's an exact quote from the Bible. Lay that alongside the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.28 who says one is justified by faith apart from works. That also is not a paraphrase, it's an exact quote. (laughs) That's why Luther's like, hey, let's just give up James. Let's keep Paul and let's give up James. Problem solved, right? Some of my um, favorite Christian teachers, New Testament commentators and scholars, don't agree at every point of interpretation that this passage has a number of thorny points, a number of places where you can either zig or zag, you have a decision you have to make. Uh, And some of my favorite scholars who agree on almost everything else might zig and zag on certain things and decisions that need to be made moving through this. That's not super reassuring. Um, Here's what I've been saying to myself to prepare myself for this moment to stand before you is, is I think James has given us one nice big clue to his main idea by repeating it multiple times, and it's this. Faith without works is dead. If you hear me say by the end of the sermon in different ways that faith without works is dead, I will have preached the passage correctly, right? James is... He's hard to ignore. He's laying the truth down in that kind of clear terms. If, in other words, if you claim to have faith, it must be accompanied by your life. It must be accompanied by actions that demonstrate your claim of faith because faith without works is dead. James chapter two, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? 
For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. There are movies that you've probably seen that it's, it's like it's the same movie you've seen before, but it's just different characters. It might even be the same character. It's Liam Neeson again, doing what Liam Neeson always does, right? Or it's Denzel doing Denzel. He's got a different name or character or whatever, but it's the same exact movie laid over some other movie you've seen. But a movie came out in 1989 that I saw, and it was unlike any movie that I had ever seen before. The plot revolved around two young employees who discover that their boss had been murdered. But to avoid being implicated in the crime, they pretend he's still alive. And this was a movie called Weekend at Bernie's. Uh, that's not a recommendation. All right, <laughs> leave it in 89, it's fine back there, right? Uh, so in Weekend at Bernie's, what ends up happening? Bernie's dead, Bernie's gone, right? And, and yet, there he is, uh, perched up under a beach umbrella, looking like he's just chilling. And there's Bernie, uh, looks like he's water skiing uh, on one particular occasion. But on closer inspection, something doesn't look right about the way the man is skiing, right? Here, so James, he lived a long time before 1989. He lived in the first century, but it sounds like he saw the movie. <laughs> As some were claiming faith, but on closer inspection weren't actually breathing. And James has that concern of pointing out the difference between those who say they're alive and those who demonstrate that they have a vital faith in Jesus Christ. I'll just say this on our way into the text. Nominalism is eating our lunch in the American church. Easy believism deceives its hearers and it hinders the mission because the world doesn't see a people transformed by the gospel. And so then the world wants to know what's so compelling about your gospel. You say the gospel has power to save, power to redeem, power to forgive, power to change. Where? Where do we actually see any of that going on? And so our words about Forgiveness, our words about the fruit of the spirit, our words about flourishing and spiritual renewal ring hollow. James has that concern. It's why he's leaning in in this moment. So we're gonna study this passage under four headings. Number one, the punch. The punch. So James, in the course of the passage that I just read to you, he asks six questions. They are hard-hitting questions and he asked these questions to prompt thinking, to pull them into uh, discernment. He starts right there in verse 14, if you've got your Bible open, verse 14, what good is it? That's why I say the punch, all right? He starts strong. What good is it if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Here's the point for us to think about. Christianity has a recurring illness, a faith that talks but doesn't walk. So, for example, the Apostle Paul talks about the impact of a life that's been made new by God. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming 
new, right? The, the problem of easy believism, the problem of cheap grace is that it tells people they are a new creation when old things are obviously not passing away and when behold, all things are staying exactly as they were before. That's the problem, right? So why does Paul sound one way and James sound another way when they talk sometimes about faith and works? They sound different ways at different times because they're addressing different pastoral concerns. Think about it. When it comes to discussing faith and works, Paul so often is concerned about legalism. James is concerned about nominalism. Those are two different pastoral concerns that would lead you to say and emphasize different things. Paul says, for example, to his audience in certain places, you can't reach heaven by keeping the Mosaic law. James says, I'll add to that, you can't reach heaven by nodding agreement to a statement of faith. Paul says, we're not saved by moral effort. James says, we're not saved by mental assent. Both of these are false ways. We need both of these apostles speaking into this space about faith and works. You think about it. Do we classify someone as saved who simply says the right things but doesn't have a life that imitates Christ or submits to or embraces his teaching? James asks two rhetorical, hard-hitting questions right out of the gate and it is like a one-two punch and the answers are supposed to be obvious. They're rhetorical questions that we're supposed to know how to answer the question. He says, what good is faith without works? What's the answer we're supposed to supply? It's no good. He says, can such faith save them? The answer is no, it can't. So faith without works is no good and faith without works can't save. That's just James' manifest teaching. That's not us even really doing any interpretive work. He just says that. We have to square it theologically. There was a, a huge debate that broke out in the evangelical world in the 1980s and 1990s called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. And you had guys like uh, Zane Hodges and Charles Ryrie on one end who were arguing that grace is so free that Jesus will forgive the sins of those who ask even if they never intend to follow him. And then you had John MacArthur, John Stott, and James Montgomery Boyce and others on the other side who were saying, you can't believe on a half Christ. You can't take him as savior and leave aside the lordship part as optional. The New Testament doesn't allow that option to us. This is not, this is not the, the salad bar where you choose certain things and deselect certain things. You take Jesus on his terms, Lord, Savior, treasure. He offers himself in that way and when he offers himself in that way and people don't embrace him entirely, he lets them walk in the pages of the gospels. So we've had debates about that, but in the New Testament, there is no debate about that. New Testament voices on faith that just talks are of one voice. Here's just a sampling, the Apostle Paul. Don't be deceived, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's their life look like? Unrighteous, they're not going to heaven. Unrepentant, they're not going to heaven. Peter, 
says to someone who just a minute ago claimed to be a believer, just a minute ago was baptized on that profession of faith, and then his heart is revealed, and Peter says to the Simon the sorcerer, may your money perish with you. You thought you could buy your way into the power of God. John, whoever says I know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar. And then Jesus himself, not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. It shouldn't be any surprise given that that's Jesus, James's older brother, that James would then write the passage that we saw a couple weeks ago and say, don't be hearers only, but doers of the word. He gets that straight from Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a theologian and a, a pastor. He also would become a martyr. He stood with the Jews against not rising Nazi oppression in Germany. He ended up being caught by the Nazis and was executed in a prison camp. But in his classic, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer thundered against easy believism and what he called cheap grace. Here's what Bonhoeffer said. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It is the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. So there's the punch. Next is the parable. The parable, verse 15, if you'd follow along. Verse 15, James says, if a brother or sister, so he creates an imaginary scenario. Brother or sister's without clothes and lacks daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. So James here introduces a needy person in the form of this little story parable. It's an analogy, but it's not just an analogy because remember, he used a parable earlier in chapter two. We saw it last week. And both of these analogy illustrations seem to represent a live issue among the people of God in the first century. So in verse two, If you got your Bible open, you just look up there, right? Somebody comes into the church and they were shabbily dressed and they were avoided and shuffled off to the side. Go sit back in the back or stand off somewhere, right? Try try to stay out of sight. They were avoided in verse two. Verse 15, we got the poor person back, but the poor person is clearly identified now as a believer. It says a brother or sister comes in and this brother or sister is unfed and unclothed, but this time the church doesn't avoid the person. The church takes one step better and says, be warm, <laughs> be well fed. I hope, I hope you have a great day, <laughs> right? Says kind words, but is that, is that what the call is for us as Christians? That's where James is leaning in, right? They pronounce a benediction. It's a story, the one James tells is a story about Christians who need provision, not just benediction. So he's presenting the scenario where we, we have to discern what does Jesus teach us to do when we see this? 
When a brother is naked or hungry, what does love require? Remember what we saw last week, the royal edict, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So we're still in that same context. If you ignore the paragraph differences, we're still in that same context. The point isn't to diss on good words. Words of affection, words of brotherly love, or that, that's great, that's wonderful, right? There's nothing wrong with saying good words or saying kind words, but in this scenario drawn up by James, the error is not in what was said, but in what was not done. The error is not in what was said, but in what was not done. And I think this is where the debates over what to do with James's words about justification by works can get really confusing because when James talks about works here, he's not talking about, he's not making a bid for the people of God, the new covenant people of God to come under the obligations of the Mosaic law, the requirements of the Mosaic law. He's talking about the royal edict. He's talking about what Paul would talk about in Galatians, faith that works itself out in love. Faith, he's talking about how the root of faith produces fruit on the tree, the fruit of good works. It grows out of the root. We're not mustering something up. We're not earning something. It's vital life is inside of us and it begins to show itself from the inside out. James is not preaching perfectionism. He's challenging indifference. He's challenging a spirit of indifference to the burdens of your brothers and sisters. So the punch, the parable, the posers, the posers. The first time I ever heard the word posers, I think, it was in the context of skateboarding. When I was a kid, everybody wanted a skateboard, everybody wanted a really nice skateboard, and everybody was building ramps, and, uh, you know, and, and then you, if you were really courageous, you would drop the ramp and... Uh, I dropped a ramp one time and I've never knocked the wind out of myself more than that one day I dropped that. So really, uh, it's 40 years later that I discovered I was a poser. <laughs> I was what they called a po- I had the nicest looking skateboard on our block and I couldn't even ollie, which is like the most basic move where you jump, you know. I, I couldn't do any of the moves, right? Well, James is addressing some things and he says, I think there are some posers here and I, I need to point the fact out that that is possible in the church. Here in verse 18, James is going to employ a literary technique in the ancient world that's called the diatribe. The diatribe is where you would set up an imaginary conversation uh, between two different points of view and both of those points of view were represented by the author who takes up both sides in turn, but it's done, the diatribe is done with the intention of showing one side is significantly stronger than the other side. Paul does diatribe, James does diatribe. It was, it was a common way to think out loud. And so the debates are basically going down this way. James says, I hear you saying some have works and others have faith and you don't need both. You know, I got what I got, you do what you do, I'll do what I do, and we're all gonna be okay. You, you can hold down the works part and I'll hold down the faith part. You can claim faith, but without works, James says, you can't prove it's really there. You can claim it's there, but without works, you can't prove it's there. And James says, I, on the other hand, can show you my faith and the way that my faith is visible is by my works. 
by love for people, by compassion toward the broken, right? And in life, you think about this, in life there are reasonable needs sometimes for someone on the other side of a counter or whatever to ask you to prove who you say you are. I know a guy, his name is Ed, and he's, uh, he's got one of the best dad jokes. I could never pull this off, but a great dad joke is one that needs repeating. It's so good, you have to do it over and over and over. And one of Ed's dad jokes that drives his kids crazy is when he goes to some place that asks for an ID. He goes to the airport counter, his kids are all there. And the person says, I need to see some ID. And he says, you just need to trust me. And he says, <laughs> he, he can keep a straight face and he thinks it's just great material, but his kids absolutely hate it. Every time he says, I just need you to trust me, <laughs> right? James wants us to understand an expectation of good works in the life of a believer is not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable. Expectation of good works in the life of a believer is also not legalism. And we can say that for two reasons. One from Paul, famous passage about faith. You are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So the first reason that we don't wanna just uh, cry legalism when James calls for good works is because God's work in saving you leads inevitably to good works. It's the design plan of God. It's, he saves us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. He moves on the inside by his Holy Spirit, begins renewing us, moves stuff around, gives us repentance, gives us new desires, and starts calling us to himself. The second reason is that faith construed as belief that's unaccompanied by obedience to God, James says, demons have that kind of faith. Talk about a poser. Demons have that kind of faith, James said. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one and he slow claps. <laughs> you believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So James, it sounds like he's commending their right words, but he's being sarcastic. You believe that God is one, that's great. Even the demons believe and they shudder. He's choosing those words very much on purpose because that was the core statement of faith for God's people. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter six, sing the Shema with the old covenant people of God. They would recite those words at least three times a day. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So James has identified the core article of faith, right? In the Mosaic creed of the Old Testament revealed by God to his people. And James says, you can say that and still be a demon. James says, demons know some theology. Just everybody needs to know. Demons know some theology. Demons know that there's a God. Demons know that God is one. Demons know Jesus died on the cross. Jesus, uh, demons know Jesus rose from the dead. In the Gospels, it's interesting. In the Gospels, Israel's best Bible teachers can't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. But you know who does? Demons. 
They always know the moment Jesus walks up, his boat docks on the shore, demon comes running saying, you are the holy one of God. (laughs) The demons know. We might not always know, but they know who Jesus is. And, And James says the difference though, the difference between having right words or some knowledge and true faith is demons have no interest in serving Jesus. They have no interest in following Jesus. Yes, they shudder. Yes, they tremble. Watch the demoniacs. Yes, they tremble before him. But they don't love him. And you know what Jesus said? If you love me, you'll obey me. Love in the heart of a believer, one, is an act and work of God's grace. Pure and simple. It is a work of God's grace. And when that work of God's grace seizes our hearts, Jesus says, what issues forth? is good works, obedience. If you love me, you'll obey me. The punch, the parable, the posers, and the patriarchs. James takes them for a tour into stories of the Old Testament. And really, all the Bible's stories of stunning faith are stories of faith in action. Not simply verbalized faith, but faith that's visible. And I think if we're not careful, again, to make this contemporary for us and think about it in our own life, if we're not careful, there can be this massive chasm between profession and life. Between the words that we speak about Jesus and we mouth those words, but they don't animate a life of worship or obedience, or trust, or repentance, or humility. And James just wants to call a flag on the play. He just, he's calling that out. The Apostle Peter, again, the Bible speaks with one voice in this way. The Apostle Peter says this, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, and goodness with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Again, if we're not careful, we interrupt Peter and say, no, the answer is add to your faith nothing. Because the moment you added to your faith This became legalism. Oh, Peter is in the Bible, right? God has signed off on this. This is good. This is 100% right here, right? Just like branches that are grafted into a good vine bear fruit, Jesus would say what? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear fruit and your fruit will remain. James says, takes him on this tour through history. Meet Abraham. Father of the faith. God promised and Abraham believed and he was justified by faith, but his genuine faith was proven through obedience. That's basically what James is saying here about the story of Abraham. Gloriously, the Bible teaches that Abraham was counted righteous, was justified, was declared right with God on the basis of trusting in God's promise apart from works. But James goes on to say Abraham's genuine faith 
was proven by his obedience. That's what James means when he says Abraham was justified by works. He means Abraham's actions were vindicated, were justified in that sense, were proved to be uh, true. The reality of his faith was proved by his obedience. So the term justified in Paul mostly refers to the act of declaring someone to be in the right. But here, and in a couple of other places arguably, justified refers to an action which demonstrates someone to be in the right. For example, Matthew chapter 11, which says wisdom is justified by her deeds, is vindicated by her deeds. You wanna see if it was truly wise? Watch what happened, right? I love this statement from Kent Hughes. Paul denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works. That is works that lead your way into earning righteousness. He denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works. But James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. That's really important. Paul was fighting against the tradition which promoted a false works salvation. James was fighting against a light faith which minimized the necessity of works after coming to Christ. Again, we could look in so many places if we had more time where this is demonstrable in the Bible. The great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 tells some of the greatest hits. Stories of faith are all combined right there in Hebrews chapter 11, but the refrain sounds like this. Here's a couple of samples. By faith, Abel offered to God. So there's action. By faith, he did something, right? By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not seen and motivated by godly fear, talked about an ark to deliver his family. No, built an ark. By faith, he built something. He moved in the direction of what he heard. He wasn't just a hearer, he was a doer. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words, you read through Hebrews 11 and you find out the so-called hall of faith is also a hall of works. It's a hall of the kind of works that follow a life of faith. I love that James illustrates the life of faith by appealing to two very different kinds of stories. He says, meet Abraham, father of the faith, and then he says, meet Rahab, chief of sinners. She heard God, she heard about God, and she believed, and her genuine faith was proven when she risked her life to shelter God's people. You might not be familiar with the story. Rahab was a prostitute living in the wall of Jericho, had a residence there, an apartment right there in the wall of Jericho. And when Joshua sent spies, because God was gonna give them Jericho and give them the land, the spies came in under cover of darkness and Rahab said, Psst, come in here. And she let them into her house and she shielded and protected them. And when the authorities from Jericho got word that Israel had sent spies, she said, what spies? And, she, and then, then she said, oh, oh, those spies. She said, they went that way. No, they didn't. They were, they were under the flask out on the roof, right? So, so she sent them one way so that she could shield. She risked her life by doing that. And you know what she, else she did? She showed where her allegiance was. She pushed all her chips to Yahweh's square. <laughs> she said, I am, I am siding with God and with God's people. I'm throwing in my lot with God's people. And you see how both of James's illustrations of Abraham on the one hand and Rahab on the other point to a faith that's demonstrated 
by action. In the case of Abraham, he went to offer his son Isaac, he raised the knife and God said, you don't have to. His closing illustration is faith without works is akin to or analogous to a body without breath. Verse 26, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And we're right back at weekended Bernie's, aren't we? James says, look closer at the guy who looks like he's skiing and you'll see he's not really skiing. (laughs) The root of faith and the fruits of obedience, please hear this, are all of grace. The root of faith and the fruits of obedience are all of grace. It's the same God who justifies us, the same God who forgives us is the God who transforms us, who moves in by his spirit to make the insides different so that it looks different in our lives. True faith is a living faith. Faith breathes in, faith breathes out. Faith inhales God's promises, faith exhales obedience. There's a fascinating article that came across my newsfeed in the summer of 2023 and it was entitled, Chinese zoo denies its sun bears are people in costume. The article reads, a zoo in Eastern China has denied suggestions that some of its bears were people dressed in costume after videos of a Malayan Malayan sun bear looking uncannily human went viral. It's funny because you read the article and the article admits that this sounds like a total conspiracy type of thing, right? But in the article, they include a link to a 2013 piece entitled, quote, Zoo in China Swaps Dog for Lion Hopes No One Notices. <laughs> and that, I looked up that article, and that article begins with this amazing line. Visitors to a zoo in China got a rude surprise when the lion started barking. <laughs> One family took their six-year-old son to the zoo in People's Park, reported the local newspaper. On the way, Mrs. Liu was teaching her son all the sounds that the different animals make. But when they arrived, her son said, Mom, the lion is barking. <laughs> and a close-up picture that I found online uh, revealed that the supposed lion was a beautifully bronze-coated Tibetan mastiff. The book of James is uncomfortable because it isn't afraid to say, this is a cool exhibit, but some of those lions are definitely dogs. There are lots of unbelievers in Birmingham who don't know they're unbelievers. Bear suits and barking lions. And that's, that's a great tragedy and it's further aggravated by unclear teaching and an unwillingness to look hard at the kinds of things James is wanting us to see. Some Christians in Birmingham, maybe some people in this room, your, your testimony on closer inspection is about things it felt like God did 20 years ago. And the stories are 20-year-old stories. And you wanna know, what, what's the Holy Spirit been doing these past 19 years? What's the Holy Spirit been doing? Maybe it was 10 years ago you walked an aisle, 10 years ago you prayed a prayer, and maybe some of you are realizing what's happening in your life right now is, is flimsy, it's st- 
stale, it's sentimental at best, and it's been a long time since you've seen any real evidence of God's grace in your life. You can't tell me the last time that you were moved by the presence of God, moved with a heart to love Jesus more, warmed in your faith as you sat with the word open in your lap or you prayed to God for comfort, strengthened in times of need and suffering or broken about your sin and you started repenting. Can't remember the last time that happened. Those are not works, y'all. Those are not works by which we earn salvation. They are fruits that grow on the tree of salvation. As the body without breath is dead, faith without works is dead. What's the solution? If, if I was just describing you, what's the solution? The solution is not that you begin to try to do good works in your own strength, by your own power. We are saved by grace through faith, full stop, right? The solution is admit your need for the mercy of God. Look to Christ. Look to the one who died on the cross in your place. Look to the resurrection that promises new life to those who believe. Ask Jesus to give you genuine faith, to give you a heart that's broken over sin, right? Ask him to give you a new heart that leads to new life. Here's the thing. That admission itself is a work of God's grace. If you find yourself doing it, guess what you find yourself doing? Breathing. God has begun to work, right? And once you start breathing and as your living faith learns to breathe, guess what's coming soon? Good works are coming soon. Brooke Hills, let's not just talk our faith. Let's demonstrate our faith. 